Well, when you feel appropriately greeted, you may be seated. Uh, this message will be meted out in rhyme. Uh, that is the design of the, no, I, I was trying, I'm like, oh man, freelancing is not my, uh, my, my or, what, see, I call it freelancing, freestyling, which tells you a little bit of what I know about freestyling, yeah. I don't know if, uh, if you guys had a favorite holiday growing up, but for me, actually, it was Thanksgiving. It was a little, little surprising, right? Because for most kids, growing up, Christmas would be the one. I mean, you know, kids and presents are gonna go together like keys and pa peas and carrots, um, but keys and parrots don't go together well at all, do they? I I'm not sure that they do. Um, but I loved Thanksgiving and my family, big family, uh, my dad was one of five boys and they all stayed and lived in Lexington, Kentucky and uh, where I was born and raised. Go Wildcats. Woo! All right. Yeah. And so I loved Thanksgiving because we would always go to my Aunt Becky and Uncle Bill's house and, and for you to get a graph, I can't even take you there. My, my uh, Aunt Becky is an extraordinary decorator and cook. Uh, her son, my cousin, went on to be like a four-star chef. He owns his own restaurant in Lexington. And so she would just put on this spread and all my family would show up and would gather in. And, and it just meant something deep to me. I think as a young man trying to understand who I was and what it meant, Thanksgiving really spoke deeply to me. We always gathered at five o'clock. It was a dinnertime meal. And in my family, we dressed up. And I remember as a, as a teenager going to my aunt and just being like, do I have to dress up? She said, honey, if I'm gonna cook all day, the least you can do is put on a tie. <laughs> and even in my teenage brain, I thought, yeah, that makes sense. I get it, you know? And so, you know, I didn't argue ever again. And, and we would show up dinnertime dressed up. And I don't know, do you guys have a kid table? at your Thanksgiving? Yeah, we did too. I mean, it's such a big family. We had multiple tables and, and, uh, and we had a kid table. And the funny thing is, I didn't realize this until later, but our kid table was kind of unique. My, my Aunt Becky would, it had a centerpiece. It was decorated, it had place cards, those things with your name on it where you knew where to sit. There would be like special toys and things that she would put out for the kids. We would fight over the kid table. And I think I learned in there a little bit about who we are. We were a family that valued children. We expected a lot of kids. We knew that they could step up to that. That was who we are. There were always guests at my Thanksgiving. Somebody was always bringing somebody else. And so there was longtime family friends and new friends and, and stuff coming in. And I realized, oh man, we're a family that values guests. We invite people in. There was always stories. We would kind of fill up on food. There was no football. She wasn't cooking all day to have to lose the men to the football game. And so, you know, there was no football on it. But the, then would outroll the stories. And I would just listen to the stories of our family, different things, different funny stuff. Sometime asked me about the time I accidentally um, thought I had sparkling grape juice and I was about eight and it was wine. And, uh, and it was a whole other story I'll tell you another time. But, you know, we just, and you learn who we were. And so I think it's because of that that when Jesus went to explain what his coming death would mean, when he wanted to explain that to his disciples, he didn't stand up and give them a sermon. He didn't give them a bunch of principles. He gave them a meal. And I think I understand that at a deep level because of what I experienced. I know the meaning and the identity-shaping experience that a meal can be. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to spend some time looking at what is that meal all about? 
We're in this series called Kingdom Come. And we've been looking at the ways that God has equipped us to live in His kingdom here, now, on earth as it is in heaven. Not just how we get to heaven when we die, but what about now as God is reconciling heaven and earth? How do we live in the midst of that? God has gone to great lengths to provide what we need to equip us to live a life that we maybe are only just beginning to understand. And so we've talked about the gospel. We've talked about the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the scriptures. And last week, Pastor Pete and Pastor Joel taught us about the church and how we're not the church by ourselves. We're the church together and the great opportunity and responsibility and encouragement that we are as the church. And so this week, we're going to talk about the sacraments. Now, that's kind of a funny word. It gets even funnier if you're administering the sacraments, because then it's said to be a sacerdotal function. I think I love that. I'm always sacerdotaling, um, which I think sounds like yodeling. And so I think that's why I like it. But it's just this, this word, it can be like, what is that all about? The root word of it is sacred. It's these things that are appointed that we understand to be particularly sacred in our world. And so sometimes around here, we just call them the sacred practices. So we're going to talk about that. And, and to help us get a sense for what happens in these sacred practices, I'm going to focus us in on this meal, on communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And to do that, we're going to take a look at actually the oldest written record that we have of Jesus instituting this meal as his supper. The letters of Paul actually predate the Gospels in terms of their writing. And so the oldest record that we have of Jesus establishing this meal comes actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in this chapter, Paul gives us this beautiful vision, this inspiring vision for what this meal is. But before we can get there, we need to talk about what the context is of this Corinthian church. Actually, a few verses before, and we'll read them together, Paul's pretty frustrated with them because they've missed something about this meal that I think we also miss often. And what they have missed is the fact that actually it's, it's the body of Christ gathered that also has a sacramental element. It's not just the body of Christ symbolic, but also the body of Christ gathered that ties into what the meaning of this meal is. So let's take a look at it. Verse 17, Paul says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Let me pause right there. That, that verse can be confusing. Uh, in ancient times, when they would write letters, they wanted those letters to represent them as close as possible. They wanted when that person stood up and read that letter aloud to the group as it would happen, they wanted you to have a sense that Paul was actually there. And so sometimes when Paul's frustrated, and he's frustrated in here, he can get cutting and he can get a bit sarcastic. And that's a lot of times hard to figure out. And I actually think verse 19 is, is a, bit of, a bit of kind of sarcasm for Paul. He's saying, for there must also be factions among you, or else, how else can we tell who's awesome and who's not awesome? I mean, essentially that's what he's, what he's saying and he's picking on them for their division. So let's keep going. In verse 20, therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper 
For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Yeah, there's a little, there's a little encouragement for Paul, huh? Paul is upset about the fact that they have missed part of the essence of this meal. And here's what's happening. In, in Corinth, or in the early times, uh, those that were well off loved to practice hospitality. They loved it. They loved to welcome in those who were less fortunate. But they still did it in a way to maintain division. In their homes, they would have a main dining area, a small dining room, but it'd be a main dining area. And there, that's where they would welcome the esteemed guests, those who, who had wealth. And that's where the richest foods and the best wine would be served. And then they would have an adjoining room or rooms, depending on how wealthy they were. And those of a lower social status, they would eat there. And it would be more basic food, less quality wine. And what has happened is as this church in Corinth has gathered for the Lord's Supper, they've somehow managed to continue this practice and they're establishing each other and some are going hungry and others are having this huge meal. And Paul is saying, no, 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 you have missed it. That is not the Lord's Supper. You see, there is a sacramental dimension to the body of Christ gathered around the body of Christ. It reminds me of Jesus, when he says in the Sermon on the Mount, hey, when you come and you bring your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there. Go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. Then come back and offer your gift. Or when they ask him, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He says, oh, it's easy. Love God. But there's another like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. See how Jesus is constantly linking the vertical and the horizontal relationship here. And Paul's saying the same thing is happening. It'd be like me showing up for Thanksgiving and walking in, and my dad's name was Charlie, walking in and be like, okay, the Charlie Turnbull family, uh, there's a turkey neck and some Ritz crackers over on that coffee table. You guys are on your own. And the rest of us, we're over here just celebrating. And as I nod on that turkey neck and Ritz crackers, I'd be going, wait a second. This isn't Thanksgiving. It's about us. It's about family. The same thing is happening here. And Paul is wanting to make sure that you recognize that the body of Christ gathered is a part of the sacrament. Do you realize that means that part of the sacrament is sitting right next to you? C.S. Lewis says that, the, that the, next to the blessed sacrament itself, he's talking about the symbol, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Which means that part of what you need to be in the presence of God, part of what you need to experience and understand who God is and to experience the grace of this meal, the experience of the meal is contained in your neighbor. But I think sometimes we forget that our neighbor has a sacramental quality. We forget the sacredness of our neighbor. And Paul's making sure that this church doesn't miss that. But then he goes from that correction to this soaring vision of what it is. And that's what takes us to verse 23. And that he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And the night he was betrayed, this was a Passover night. This was a Passover meal, which would have been a meal rich with symbolism and story of God leading his people out of bondage of Egypt, marked most uh, prominently by the Passover, that when, when God came to his people and said, go and sacrifice, make a sacrifice and take the blood of that lamb or that goat and put it above the door. And when the angel comes, he will pass over your home. You will be spared. Jesus takes all that rich meaning and that is where he steps into and he fills it to overflowing and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to establish a new covenant with you. But this time, my body will be the sacrifice. My blood will establish this new covenant. And it'll be a new kind of covenant, one that's written on your hearts, a covenant of grace, not one of, of the law. Now for us, the blood stuff kind of freaks us out a little bit, right? We don't live in a, in a sacrificial culture, so we're not used to, to blood. We don't process our own animals for meat. Right? And so we're not used to blood. But even still, I think we understand when we listen to people talking, we still have this deep sense of the solemnness of a covenant, of a deep promise. A contract we understand really easy. I'll do this if you'll do that, and then we shake on it, right? Or we sign it. But a covenant, you listen to, to children enter into a covenant, enter into a deep promise. And what do they say? Cross my heart. Hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. It's gruesome. It's a gruesome stuff, you know, but these kids, I think they realize, wait, there is something solemn about this promise. This isn't a contractual deal. This is a covenantal deal. And if you listen in on the vows of a wedding covenant that they give, it's, it's you know, sure, for richer, but also for poorer. Yeah, for health, but also for sickness until death do us part. This is not a, yeah, I'll do this if you do this. It's a, hey, as we're leaving this ceremony, if we get in an accident and it changes the course of the direction that we're headed on, I am saying, I'm going to be there. That's deep. And still we talk about death and sickness. We understand the solemnness, the depth of a covenant. And Jesus is stepping into that. He's understanding that in order for this covenant to happen, sin and evil has to be addressed. That there has to be a sacrifice. And Jesus is in essence right here saying, cross my heart, hope to die on your behalf. Because he knows that at 6 p.m. the next night after his death on the cross, the world is going to be a different place. He understands that out of that, that God will begin to reconcile the world in a new way. He will draw an extended family to himself and he will send his spirit to that family and he'll send that family to the world. He understands that the world is about to be different because of his sacrifice. And so he goes and says, yeah, I'll do it. And he institutes that. He teaches us that in this meal, which then leads to Paul giving this what is essentially the key verse right here in verse 26 for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's death until he comes. If you're looking for a purpose statement for your life, Paul just gave you a good one right there. Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Proclaim that you understand that we are the people shaped by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and shaped by his promise to come again. We are the people of the cross and the covenant. We are the people that understand that, that evil has been defeated, that sin has been defeated, and that death doesn't get the last word. The covenant and the cross, we are the people who understand that there is deep magic at work, as C.S. Lewis says in Chronicles of Narnia. There's deep magic at work behind the rulers and principalities of this world that God is reconciling himself, reconciling us to himself. In other words, we are the people of hope. And at this meal, we proclaim that hope. We proclaim that our hope is not found in news stories. Our hope is not found in governments or in getting the right person elected. Our hope is not found in educational systems. It's not found in this or that job. Our hope is not found in that cute guy or that beautiful girl across the room that catches our attention. And it's not found in those beautiful babies as wonderful as they are. It's not found in the car that you drive. Our hope isn't found then in the, in the house that we live in or the clothes that we wear. It's not found in the latest fitness craze or the latest diet. Hear me, governments cannot regulate our hope. Congress can't vote on our hope. Our hope doesn't run for office. Our hope is not educated in the right schools. Our hope doesn't go to work in just the right job. Our hope doesn't walk down the aisle to us. Our hope doesn't pack a lunch and head out to school the next day or in the, in the morning. We don't drive our hope. We don't wear our hope. We don't lay down at night with our hope over our head. We don't work out our hope in the latest fitness craze, and we certainly don't diet our way to our hope. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, risen, and coming again. We are the people of hope. And the world doesn't always know it. And we don't always know it. And so we come to this table, and Paul says, when you come to this table, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. He says, you come and you proclaim the cross and the covenant. And we are shaped by that. Our identity is then shaped by that. When we place our hope in governments, in schools, in spouses, and kids, and stuff, they have to carry a burden that they weren't meant to bear. We actually create idols out of them. And we deform our identity. We actually lose the ability to affect the change that we want to see in the world. And so God gives us this meal. Paul says that's what this is about. We come together and we affirm who we are as a people. We affirm who we are as a church. And I don't know about you, but I need that. I think Jesus says to remember because he knows we forget. I know I do. I get out in the world and things don't go as they're supposed to go. Anybody else experience that? A couple years ago, 
my wife and I decided we wanted some chickens, and so we got some chickens. And it turns out we really liked it, so, so much so that we decided that we wanted to get a little farm. And, uh, and so we did. We sold our house. We bought this farm-ish thing on a, on a couple of acres. And, uh, and we've got chickens and ducks and turkeys and goats and even a cow. And, and we love it. It's a lot of work, uh, but it's a lot of fun. And so we love it. And one day I came to work. It was a Wednesday, I still remember. And, and I got a phone call. And this guy on the other line said, hello, I've got your goats and your cow. I was thinking, is this a hostage negotiation? Like, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, <laughs> give me a million dollars or you'll never see them again. Or, you know, I'm, what is this going to be? He's like, oh, I'm with Animal Services. And, uh, and yeah, I'm in such and such a neighborhood and your goats and cow are here. Uh, can you come get them? I said, uh, well, okay. Um, and so I, you know, I run down, I jump in my truck and I, and I drive over there. It starts raining as I'm on my way there. And the thing that you got to know about goats uh, is they don't like rain. They don't like to be out in the rain. And turns out, neither do people. And so as I pull up to this lady's house, on her small little front porch uh, are three of my goats, a cow, this woman, animal services, and a police officer that has come to oversee the whole operation, I can only suppose. And, uh, and I said, um, what's the story? And this woman, she pulled into her gated community, a cow and three goats went walking by. And so she drove home and I said, did you go slow and like call them? She said, no, I drove fast to get away from them. And they just followed me here. And uh, they came up in my yard and they started eating my landscaping. And so I called animal services. And I thought, okay, all right, well, sorry about that. Hang on, let me get, let me get them out of here. So I scoop up my three goats and I, I run them home and I put them in the fence and, and, uh, and back where they're supposed to go in their pasture area. And then I think, okay, I gotta get my cow home. I know you guys aren't farmers, uh, but there's no scooping up of cows. And, and so I'm like, well, okay, I, don't, I, I can't load her in my pickup truck. I mean, she's just a baby, but she's like 700 pounds. And so uh, I realized, well, I'm gonna have to walk her. I'm gonna have to walk her home. Granted, it's raining. I'm dressed about like this, because I've been at work. And, uh, and so I get this lead and I try to go the back way um, through. And there's this retention area in the swamp and I'm down in there and I mean, I cannot find, I can't find my way. I, I have no idea. And I realized I got to go around. I got to go around. And so um, I did. I turned around and, and walked my cow through this neighborhood. Uh, animal services and the police officer and the woman were still having a chat. And I just said, good to see you guys. Um, and, and off I go. And I still head toward the gate. The UPS lady pulled in and she's like, hey, how's it going? I said, yeah, just walking my cow. And uh, <laughs> I head out the gate. I head down the road. And I take a left on Redbug Lake Road, which is what you have to do to get to my house. And, uh, and down I go Redbug Lake Road. Uh, except I told you that it was raining, right? So what sound do cars make when it rains? Cows are terrified of that sound, I learned. And so instead of walking my cow, I am now pulling my cow <laughs> and I'm fine. People are slowing down. Hey, nothing to see here. I'm waiting for that news helicopter, you know, breaking news, man walks cow down Red Bug Lake Road. Hear all about it, you know, it's tonight at six o'clock or whatever, you know, and, and I, find, I mean, I finally get this cow in. I get down my driveway, I get her back in, the goats are in, I check all the fences, you know, everything's secure. I had left the gate unlatched and, and I get the gates latched and all that and I am wet. I'm soaked, I've been in the rain, I am dirty, I am tired, I am frustrated. 
you know, I'm stressed because I missed work, you know, and there's meetings happening. I know I'm supposed to be there, and, and here I am. And so when my kids walk in the door, am I like, hello, wonderful children, come on in. I have, you know, baked you some cookies in my spare time, you know. No, I'm like, get in here, get doing your homework right now. Give me no lip, no looks either, you know. And the dog, like, starts looking, like, uh-uh, not feeding you yet. You know, get out of the way. And Mandy's, I'm just like, you know, just growling. And all of a sudden I realize I have totally forgotten who I am. I am, we have a term for this in Kentucky, totally bent out of shape. I am totally bent out of shape. But you know what? It happens to all of us. Yeah, you may not be dragging a cow down Red Bug Lake Road, but you're dragging some stubborn sin. And it's giving you a doozy of a time. And it's beginning to get you bent out of shape. And this meal comes, you can come to this meal and remember who you are and take confidence in that, that you can go get somebody to help you with that sin. It doesn't depend on your ability to defeat it. That's not where your hope is found. You're dragging around fears for your family, worries for your family. Maybe your kids aren't doing the right thing. And it's getting you bent out of shape and you're forgetting who you are. You're dragging around a lot of fears for this country. Maybe even this community, Northland, this place, you're dragging around all kinds of stuff. Fears in your job, fears in your family, and it's getting you bent out of shape. And that's why Paul says, come to this meal. Come right here, because when we come, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim our identity. This meal brings us back to who we are. It reminds us that we are the people of hope. We are the people of the cross and the covenant. And we take in this meal and somehow, miraculously, mysteriously, God's presence fills us and sends us back out into the world again. It's amazing. And so I think we need to eat this meal together. What do you think? I think we need to celebrate it together. So let's do that. Communion stewards, would you guys come on down?